Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. <laughs> okay, well, Wayne Marshall, as I mentioned, his collection, his debut collection of short stories, Sherl. It's published by Firm Press, now in all good bookstores, of course. Now, you've been getting some great reviews recently. I've been reading them in the, um, uh, in the press. But could you tell us a little bit more about the pathway from the awards that Josh mentioned? It's not quite as simple as just getting shortlisted. How did you get to this moment today? Sure. So the shortlisting was a whirlwind that will stay with me for the rest of my life, I think. Um, Contacted by agents and publishers the very same day of the announcement, which was um, fantastic. So before the announcement on on the same day? Same day as the announcement. Receiving emails, private messages on Twitter. um, It was... And and if you hear from Christian or... um, you know, any of the other writers, it's it's the same experience. So um, at that point, I only had a 37,000-word manuscript. I was influenced to actually submit it. Uh, Melanie Chang had submitted a similar word count with uh, Australia Melanie's Day. Melanie's been on the program here. Yeah, her and had, had had success. There was a Wheeler Centre event where she spoke, and that was the moment that I actually decided to submit the thing in the first place. Oh, it, it, it wasn't really on my radar at that point. So it shows how that award inspires other writers to get out there and put that stuff into the world. Absolutely. And so through that process, a firm press came on board and wanted to publish the book, but it was still too short. So the idea is that you would try to get the collection out as soon as possible, being that it was still, you know, the VPLA shortlisting was still very much out there. So um, I had... I'd written one story in the previous year, and when I signed with a firm press, the deal was... Four stories in four months, which was terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. But the Uh, magic of a deadline? Exactly. It just shows you. Yes. So I managed to produce the four stories. I went for some... I didn't have time to doubt the material or doubt the premises, so I went with some stuff that I otherwise wouldn't have gone with. But you had a bit of a list of ideas that you were... I did. I did. But a few of the stories I'd had around for maybe three years but hadn't quite moved along with them or just forced myself to write first drafts and it's down and there's something to work with whereas before I just thought that idea is not going to work. So there are two stories in it that are quite metafictional which is I played around with that kind of fiction, non-fiction mashup a little bit more. So they've got an awareness about their own existence. Yes. So um, some things that were on the journey to writing Sherl that I decided it was time to put in, such as um, I went through cancer uh, in the the early stages of the book, which was an impetus to writing the book in the first place. And um, How did that free you up to to write what has led to this stunning debut? Yeah, sure. Um, It freed me up in the sense that I thought none of these stories would ever be published, that, you know, I was very, very sick. Um, They were just for me. This was was how many years ago when you were diagnosed? 2012 I was diagnosed and it took a year of going through all that until the second stint of chemo to want to write again and I was doing chemo on Friday Friday mornings and I'd get up and write for two hours beforehand and it was stuff just to amuse me there was no industry you know I had no I had no concept about it being published and that was turns out that that was exactly what I needed (laughs) yeah 
So it's a true silver lining from a very dark cloud. So with the stories, and I, I want to—I can't believe how you do this. Every time I get to the end of the story, I go, "How the hell did he do that?" Now I'm, I'm going to look at one section of praise from you've got. Uh, people in the front of your book who've praised the collection, who've read it in advance of publication. I'm going to read the names to you. Wayne McCauley, Nick Lowe, Jane Rawson and Ryan O'Neill. Now, they're all very influential um, writers in Australia, authors. But I actually want to zero in on Jane Rawson's because she starts in a way that you'd think, oh, maybe this doesn't sound so good. But (laughs) then she finishes on a note like, you'd be crazy to miss it. I'm going to read this out. Jane Rawson says on Wayne Marshall's collection, Shirl, These are stories of Australian men in small towns and poor suburbs. Stories of sport, drinking, fighting and love. Sounds awful, right? (laughs) I love that she puts that in. (laughs) But, there's a big but here, but these are stories told with so much heart, wit and meticulous craft that even as you're reading about a levitation class, a man in love with a kangaroo, a mermaid on a fishing trip. You're asking yourself, uh, wait, did this really happen? Wayne Marshall is a worthy successor to his townmate, Peter Carey. That's high praise there, Wayne. A writer of gorgeous imagination, daring experimentation and aching compassion. And Shirl is one of the best books of Australian stories you'll read. Wow. And I'd agree with her on that assessment there. I'm not going to make you blush anymore. The readers fortunately can't, the listeners fortunately can't see that here. But um, there are other praise in there. However, I want to move beyond that praise to the craft. You mentioned before how it freed you up to write. I want to quote something that sounds like a real mouthful from Aristotle. Uh, a probable impossibility is preferable to an impossible probability. And I, all, I had to write that down because I always mix it up. But in Wayne Marshall's world, you start with the everyday world that we think we know, then you give it a bizarre twist, and you you make us believe it. And that's what I mean. By the time you get to the end and stun us with this arresting ending, we, we just go, how the hell did he do that? So do you start with the bizarre addition or the ordinary world and let it emerge? Yeah, so it's normally it will come to me in a bizarre image or concept. They're usually quite concept-driven stories, so it will start like that. And I guess I've always had that. I've been I'd been working on writing for ten years before I started having the success with these stories, and I could come up with an initial idea well enough. But I think what was holding me back as well is there seems to me now like a secondary act of imagination where you get the big idea, but the grounding, the world building, the making it real, which for me is absolutely essential. Yep. I'm not so much into, say, straight-out surrealism where it's just all that craziness. I want it to feel absolutely real. Yep. And so that's the bigger task beyond the initial idea, and that takes a lot of drafting and, and a lot of time. that's the probable impossibility. You believe this could happen, but you kind of know it's impossible in the back of your mind, but you yeah. get along with it. And yeah. that's why I can't believe how you do that. So it's the balance of the two and finding what you call a secondary uh, incident or storyline? More like, I guess it would come back to world building, the secondary okay. act of imagination where you've yeah. got to fill that world, you've got to populate it, you've got to fill it with all the details, not too many that it bogs people down and working in short stories, you've got to zip it along. But I want it to feel real for, for readers, but real to me too. I, I want these stories to feel absolutely real, even though they're crazy. 
you know. Okay, now I'm going to go to a specific example here, and it's the story that's inspired the cover of Shell. And yep. a man has fallen in love with a kangaroo. How on earth do you make that real without sort of, you know, going into <laughs> sort of bizarre things you perhaps wouldn't put in a literary collection of shorts? How do you make that believable, including that the kangaroo's wearing a Carlton jumper? <laughs> I think it's the stuff like the Carlton Jumper and the Party Pies and the name of the beer and the f- name of specific football players that gives it that you can feel that house and that place and the, the, two, the two men that populate that story. I think there's just a real reality to those guys. And that's where I grew up. That's my culture. And so I drew on all of that, again, beyond the crazy idea to fill it with with realistic detail and to just draft and draft and draft until it felt real. It does feel very real. And one of the things I really liked about it was the kangaroo never reacts in the way you expect. You know, it sort of takes something personally and sort of moves up there and does that. So you give it a three-dimensional character yeah. to <laughs> kangaroo, let's face it. Yeah. But you do it in a way that we all go along, which I really like. Thank you. Would you call that, uh, and I probably won't want me to bring this up in terms of defining it as a genre, but would you call it magic realism or fantastic realism? Yeah, I'm a bit careful with the magic realism stuff because it has a specific origin um, and a specific cultural lineage being in South America and the magic realists that came out of there. So the what, the second one, fantastic realism. Well, it's really you know a sort of version of magic. You know, that yeah. improbable things happen in I th- everyday life. I think I'm coming more and more to the understanding that I my entire style comes out of the young culture that I grew up in. Okay. I grew up out of suburban Melbourne with people that stood around telling tall stories full of exaggeration and humour and colour and big twists. Yeah. And I think I've just realised that that informs my style so much. Yeah, that sums it up beautifully and it shows in all your work. Now, you had the Melbourne launch last week at the Hill of Content bookstore in Melbourne, but you've got a Bacchus Marsh launch this Saturday. Could you tell us the details? Yes, I do. So we have a launch at the Bacchus Marsh Library this Saturday at 12.30 and... It's going to be really special because they've supported me for so long and they gave me and another writer friend of mine, Jem Tiley Miller, the license to do things like create the Peter Carey Short Story Award, which we've been running for four years. It's just this small award that is now national and really big. But he's given it his personal imprimatur, hasn't he? Yes, and and Peter sees the winning stories and, you know. To talk to someone like Peter Carey, even across email, is, is right. huge. <laughs> so time and place at the Bacchus Marsh Library this Saturday at? At 12.30. At 12.30, for yes. 12.30 kind of thing. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, yes. The speeches. All right. Thank you very much, Wayne Marshall, on your congratulations on your debut collection of short stories. Shell is the title, published by Affirm Press. And back to you, David. Ewan, do you realise that it's actually subscriber season? Oh, yes, coming up. Well, it, it yeah, is. Well, right now, well, it's always subscriber <laughs> it's season. It's always <laughs> subscriber season. Yeah. So if you know of anybody that wants to subscribe to 3CR to hear sure. stories about, well, stories about Wayne stories or yeah. find out more about that, there might even be some people at the Bacchus Marsh Library that would want to Definitely. subscribe that because be there great. are so many fascinating shows on 3CR, like published or not. And they will be podcasts, so they are up there forever. Now, there is a a segue, and obviously this is serendipitous, (laughs) uh, between the authors today, more than just judging prizes, when this concept of the impossible, because Josh Mamari, his novel In the Clearing, touches on something that is improbable but actually does exist. And this was brought to mind in this sort of dark, frightening 
dangerous world that he's created that is very real. And it starts with an, an author's quote or a person's quote at the beginning of the book. And that quote is simply, I love children. Harmless, you think. But Josh, who do you attribute that quote to? Well, I'm sure many people have said that before, but uh, I was quoting Anne Hamilton Byrne. And the significance of Anne Hamilton Byrne, for those Uh, that may not know? uh, So she um, is the founder slash matriarch slash leader of the family cult um, from the you know, the New Age cult from the 60s through the 90s in rural Victoria. And it did exist. It did. And what did it do? Uh, well, a so lot briefly, of, a, a lot, lot of things, things uh, incidentally. No, it's... Um, they, well, there are parallels between yeah, what correct. she did and what you've got in this book. Correct, correct. So I think in the clearing I should point out, because um, there are lawyers and they exist for a reason to, and sometimes they <laughs> sue publishers, uh, this is a um, this is inspired by, in some regards, but a, but a separate story. But there are certainly many parallels. Um, and the so the family... Um, acquired children by dubious means, uh, essentially taking children from members, but also um, adopting children illegally, forging adoption papers, so on and so forth. Uh, So they essentially, I mean, they had a whole bunch of strange New Age um, visions of the world, and they essentially uh, were raising children away from, sort of excluded from society in a way that um, they, well, they incorporated things like LSD overdoses. They, uh, there was all sorts of pretty torturous um, things they did. Lots of the treatment right now would would make people, I think, Well, this is one storyline that goes through this book, the story of Amy. I'm in the classroom at the back of the Great Hall that afternoon when, gazing out the window across the clearing, I see Asher emerge from the shed. We have been studying geography, learning about the world, the wars and violence, ozone depletion and melting ice sheets. Our education is not to be taken lightly, Adrienne says. Jonathan, our teacher, is preparing us for the new age. Under Adrienne's instruction... He is preparing us to lead. When our brother arrives, we will be 12 and we will be complete. We will be ready for the new age when it comes. Now, I'm fascinated by the psychology of people that do these things, not just those Adrienne in this case, who is the leader and the inspiration, the queen, but the acolytes that actually facilitate and support such people. Yeah. How do you come to terms with the implausibility of people behaving that way. Yeah, well, a large part of this research was um, speaking with a psychologist who I work closely with and call me Evie, and who I think is always going to be a fantastic resource and great friend. Um, And she actually facilitated a meeting between myself and someone who was in a cult, a Victorian cult, not the family, uh, but another uh, religious sort of sect. And she'd had a horrific life, but she grew up as a child, so I think there needs to be a distinction made between someone born into this environment and someone who is attracted to it. But ultimately, the the psychological landscape uh, is the same in the end because you are you believe something really fantastical. Generally, you know, there, there's certain ideals that are central to most cults that um, does not stand the test of reason. Most people, in when they're in clear mind in a society that's open to interrogating certain ideas wouldn't stand up um so the, the the interesting thing i found was particularly with the family 
um, and this book, which isn't based on the family, I should point out, so my publisher doesn't get upset. Uh, so it's inspired by... Um, but Inspired by cults in general, cults because they in all general. do similar things. Yeah, but one thing I did notice, and one thing I wanted to tap into from the story of the family, was the level of sophistication in terms of the members. We had um, an extraordinarily intelligent um, people. We have lots of people from upper middle class, largely almost entirely um, Caucasian or white, um, and you had people that were very highly educated, uh, people in the academic world, uh, in different branches of government, psychologists. Um, and she had this incredible power over these people. And it's that thing, you know, to, how do you boil a f- frog? You know, that kind of saying, you, you don't throw them, you slowly increase the temperature. So you don't turn up to this thing and they say, cool, let's overdose hmm. kids on LSD. That doesn't happen the moment you set foot in the cult, and that's not how cults recruit members. They bring them in with some sort of ideal that's really attractive. Um, And so, like, I often draw parallels with yoga, which is everyone does, you know, it's great, I do it, I love it. But then there can be this escalation to if you believe yoga does certain things, then possibly, you know, they may not necessarily be science-based, but you work towards other Things. And sometimes people will work towards things like anti-vax or, you know, a higher kind of spiritual enlightenment or whatever. And although often these things aren't harmful, I think like if you are prepared to take that initial leap, then and you are prepared to believe something that's potentially outside of the realms of possibility, then all of a sudden that can escalate to um, some of the things people believe in you know, the family or Jonestown or whatever. Well, this forms one strand of the story. We have a story being told by Amy, who's one of the children, both in diary and as narrative, and a child... She's been involved in the abduction of another child to help make up the 12. Yeah. And that forms the foundation. So that that sort of frightening thing that children are kidnapped off the street. And if you can justify that, Mm. you know, if you can justify doing that... You, the leader, can make you do anything. And um, Amy actually believes it's for the general good yes, to correct. kidnap a child, yep. not thinking of how a parent might react to such which circumstance. Is, yeah, which reflects you know m- the views of probably many of the members in the, the family cult who were, um, you know, that these children were adopted to be in an environment that was supposedly better. You know, they were going to otherwise be adopted out to other families, but this is a better environment. And so that justification early on suggests that people, you know, many members thought they were doing the right thing. Mm. But then there's another thread going through this story. You have another story being told by a character called Freya, Mm. who is frightened that her son Billy will be abducted. She goes to extraordinary lengths to... Yeah, him. I mean the story at its heart is uh, is about family. You know, um, the lengths we would go to to protect protect our family. And so Amy believes the the clearing is her family, and Freya believes and knows that Billy is her son or her family. Um, she has had trauma in the past. There was an issue with uh, her other son, who she has no contact with anymore. Who was well, there's some suspicion there because there are references to being perhaps left in a car, yeah. um, who's got custody and all of these sorts of things. Yeah, and so I think it really heightens her paranoia is that she she did something she didn't realise she was doing wrong when she lost her first child. And so she's has this kind of... She's tethered to her second son in a way that most parents perhaps aren't. But it teases the reader as well, is Freya a suitable parent in that regard. Yeah, and I love the idea of an unreliable narrator. I think most narrators are a little unreliable, but I like the idea of the reader 
being dubious of the narrator. Well, um, yeah, and Freya seems to be paranoid. She's got a guard dog. She's got security then installed, a panic yep. button. She's got shutters yep. uh, on the windows, etc. But you also then heighten the intensity because with each of Freya's chapters, it, you've got these little reminders. It's a countdown. Know, a sort of <laughs> countdown, you know, one day to go. And what happens to Billy? Well, do you want, can I, what, is it a spoiler? Well, <laughs> uh, well, Billy, something happens to him. There's yes, something happens. Correct. Well, but um, it's not so much a spoiler in the sense that there's a larger narrative going on in this novel as well, because these two threads connect. They collide, yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I say one character sort of saves the other, and perhaps that's not the right way of putting it, but um, I think, yeah, I, th- I think, for me, writing this when I set out, I um, wanted to make these narratives interact in a way that was surprising for the reader, and I hope it is surprising. Um, and they come together in a way that um, it, hopefully it all sort of makes sense and you understand what's what's happening. Uh, and I also, you know, I like the fact that I can tell the story from two perspectives, one who exists outside of the family who should have perspective but perhaps doesn't, and one that exists within the family who is about you know who potentially wants to learn about the outside world and how those two stories collide well you've got one as a child yes and then that's a sort of innocent perspective um in terms of that perception of family you've got another one then as an adult and that's another perspective of family in in that way and they have you know that there is this real deep mistrust for um society from both of them but but the difference is Freya engages in society. She lost, a, you know, through the courts and things, lost a, a child, and she's um, she's really, you know, she she teaches yoga, but is such so cynical of the yoga mums and and. But the way- she's also tentative, uh, taking Billy to school yes. and ensuring Billy's safe. There are only certain people with whom she will basically confide. Yeah. Yeah, so she's sort of she's quite withdrawn. I think it's a, you know, when you are uh, you you sort of sign a contract when you engage in society. You can be a full recluse, or you have to. There's certain things you have to do. You have to send your kid to school. Um, you have to ha- generally have a job or have some form of income or means to support yourself. Um, and so she kind of negotiates society in a way where she can have the best of both worlds. She's very reclusive, very suspicious, but she sort of wears this mask around people. She's an entirely different person at home than she is around other people because she knows that you draw attention to yourself if you are different. So she she must um, conform to the rules of society and engage in a, in a way that's sort of friendly, I guess. But um, we also then have another voice. We the, do. The Watcher. <laughs> Correct. How much can you tell us about The Watcher? Well, you know, I, th- I think I, as a writer, I am obsessed with structure. Um, I think so much of Call Me Evie as well as this book is contingent on clever, for lack of a better word, structure, not necessarily a linear narrative, not necessarily one perspective or point of view. And so I wanted, I love the idea of writing certain chapters in second person um, because I think it's really creepy. Uh, <laughs> and this character is uh, is a bit of a bit of a creep. So so the watcher, you don't know who it is, but it's this person who is watching her, mapping her movements and trying to learn about her. But 
there is the precedent has been set in the Amy narrative because in order to abduct that child, they need to know every movement that child makes. Mm. And so this notion then that we are being there watched. is watch yeah there are watches um, before yeah because you know you want to make sure the parents aren't home or whatever so so it's sort of this this idea of of um, researching a target you know um, and so that's something I wanted to uh, I guess I wanted to point out to the reader very early on that there are parallels between what's happening with but that yeah that Freire. presence then still remains yes and we live in a society where we're being Continually watched, basically. Yes. I mean, it's not... For me, I I think I always have to include some level of social commentary. And I think a large part of this is about um, the parallels between New Age cults and drinking kombucha and doing yoga and things like that. You know, so some of the things we, we are prepared to believe and others we are not and why this exists. But another sort of social commentary, I guess, was about the online world and this idea that we are not under surveillance as in so much as we are allowing ourselves... Mm this sort of access and this overview oversight from every major um, well, government essentially and every major social media platform. And so there is some of that. She tries to distance herself from social media, but I also wanted to point out that, you know, there are other means by which we can be watched. So this notion of implausibility, things happening, they do actually have the implausible does happen in the world. Sure. Uh, uh-huh. So that's that's the... The frightening thing there. So I've been talking to JP. Why JP? Why not Did we, just Josh? I feel like we cover this. No, no. We um. <laughs> I, I do get this question a lot, and my it's funny because my very close friends have always called me JP. Yeah. So my, my initials are obviously JP, but my middle name is Paul. So I get this weird thing now where strangers call me JP, and my best friends and my kind of you know. Other friends and associates call me Josh. So You've it's got a dual of, identity. I do, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and I like, you know, I as much as I knew um, writing books puts you in the spotlight to some extent, I wanted a slightly more distance. Um, but, you know, yeah. it's kind of impossible because you have to do events and see people and stuff. And talk to people yeah. unpublished or not. <laughs> so, J.P. Pomari, the novel is In the Clearing. And you and your guest was? Was Wayne Marshall and his debut collection of short stories entitled Shell, published by Affirm Press at All Good Bookstores as we speak. Now, we're going to have to escape. We're going to play a tag to get us out. In It's a subscriber tag and then we'll... Go okay. to some music, but good idea. If you know of anyone that wants to subscribe, yes. now's the time. Put the call out. Yeah.